Hey there, I'm Brian Donahue, and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm a product management director here, and one topic we're in the thick of working through is how to help our teams become more outcome-focused. That's why we invited Josh Seiden to join us. Josh is a well-known product consultant and author, and he's just released a new book called Outcomes Over Output. So we wanted to jump into this hot topic to see if we could marry our practical experience with his framework. If you enjoy the episode, please let us know by subscribing to our show and the podcast player of your choice. Enough said. Let's get stuck in. Hey, Josh. Welcome to Inside Intercom. Thanks for joining us on your book tour. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. So outcome versus uh, output. It's a hot topic in the industry these days, and it's actually a hot topic for us in R&D to Intercom. So I'm really looking forward to this chat. So um, let's start by hearing about your background and what made you write this book in the first place. So I've spent about uh, 30 years in uh, technology industry, most of that time working as a uh, user experience designer. In the last 10 or so years, I've spent a lot of time writing about design and about how product teams can be more effective together. So with my co-author, Jeff Gottelf, I wrote a book called Lean UX, which was a book about um, how product teams can work together in a more agile way. I wrote a second book with him called Sense and Respond, which was a book for business leaders to understand the importance of kind of reorganizing around uh, softwares, the sort of beating heart of our businesses. And then one of the topics that has come up for us recently uh, or come up for me recently in my consulting is this idea of outcomes. And so it just was a, a, a useful idea in so many contexts that I felt like I had to write down and share what I had been learning. Great. Well, it seems like it's one of these things that's definitely bubbling up in so many different places at the same time. It's interesting how these things happen. But first of all, I want to just thank you for writing a short business book. Got to be applauded for that. <laughs> Instead of figuring out how to beef up a book and turn it into 300 pages so it uh, lands with a thud on your desk, uh, you kept it concise. You know, it was about an hour to read. And I think it actually took me a little longer to read because it, when it's short, you, you give yourself permission to stop and think, which is uh, half the value of these things, right, to digest it. So did you have to actively resist the temptation yeah. to write a longer book here? Yeah, well, you know, so the book is published by Sense and Respond Press, which, you know, full disclosure, I'm a co-founder of that also with Jeff. And one of our value propositions was that we were, we're a press that publishes short, practical business books. Right. When we did our user research before we started the press, we met all these people, busy, busy leaders who had stacks of uh, what we came to call aspirational books. Right. Books that were sitting on the corner of their desk that they wanted to read. They knew they should read, but were just too long. You know, and we've all had that experience. Right. Of reading a book that should have been an article or reading an article that should have been a tweet, you know, yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. And so we, we, we thought like, yeah, this is, this, is a, this is an opportunity for us to sort of uh, publish the heart of the idea and not fill it out with fluff. And um, so that's been very successful for us. Well, nice. Well, thank you for that. Hopefully that's the future of uh, business publishing here. So on the surface of it, outcome versus output uh, almost seems self-explanatory. It's not about what you ship so much as about the value you create, right? So let's cut straight to the TLDR here. You know, what's the main premise of your book that you're trying to say about this? Yeah. So I think I think you're right. I think the, the notion is kind of self-explanatory. And I think people, that's, that's made it uh, almost a slogan for people. But, you know, my observation in working with teams has been that it's actually really hard to get beyond the slogan, right? Like conceptually, yeah, there's, there's nothing to disagree with there, but how do you make it practical? And so the main premise of the book 
is that by defining outcomes really, really precisely, and in the book I say, you know, uh, an outcome is a change in human behavior that drives business results, right? If you, if you use that really narrow definition of outcome, then it starts to make it possible to really apply this idea of outcomes in our work. And I think that that definition was probably the biggest aha moment for me reading through this. Like, what do you think this was in contrast to? Why, why do you think that narrow definition is helpful here? So for me, a lot of this got unlocked. There, there's a, a, a paper from the late 90s uh, that was published by the Kellogg Foundation, which describes this thing called the logic model framework. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that a little bit in the book, but basically they kind of break down program planning from sort of the resources and inputs that you need, the activities you do, the outputs you create, the outcomes you that those create, all the way up to the impact they create. And by having all of those different levels in the model, it helps you specify the thing you are working on more precisely, right? Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of times we use the word outcome and we just kind of mean result. And that's fine in casual conversation, But it's really hard when we're actually planning work, like when we're trying to write user stories, for example, right, to just Mm -hmm. say, well, what is the result that we want? Like it's super, it's a super open question. And to have to have that about every story is really difficult. So that you ask like, what's it in contrast to? It's in contrast to a really broad and undefined uh, definition. Yeah, that that resonates a lot. I mean, we actually had Paul, one of our design managers here, w- was writing a document and referencing that that model you mentioned, and I was actually uh, uh, struggling to differentiate. Well, what's like what's our outcomes impact? Aren't these the same thing? Like, what's the difference? Or and what really it was in reading your book when you say the narrowness of that definition, and if it's you know definitions are arbitrary. Let's accept that, but they're helpful when they're arbitrary. And so if we and so what we've the aha moment for me was just putting those words, customer outcome, business impact. And rather than letting these blur and interchange, suddenly by just putting those adjectives, are they adjectives? Let's run with it and assume they're adjectives, uh, that the customer outcome, business impact, suddenly these things are very separate. And just as you said, the levels suddenly become much more clear. And I think for me, and talking about it here internally, that's what's really resonated is by saying, okay, business impact is at the top. Of course, that's what we all want to do, but we've got to map it down more more lower level for what the teams can focus on. And by focusing on customer impact, or <laughs> already blurring it, customer outcome, that's yeah. where this starts to get achievable. So I'm sympathetic to someone listening to this thinking, what's the difference? What, you know, are we just in work? Words and is this just words land and whatever, whatever, go away. But actually, for me, it was a genuine aha moment where it actually separated this out. And the measurable cu- customer outcome is the key to actually being able to translate business impact into something that's more relevant for the teams and something they can actually hope to, to directly change. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, it, it, so the, the first, my first sort of aha moment with this was a, a couple of years ago. And I, I, I write a little bit about this in the book, but I was working with a team who'd been given the mission for their, their mission for the year was increased net promoter score on their service, which is very clear and also like left them with this sort of giant set of questions like how in the world are we going to do that? So in working with them to answer that question, like 
okay, we understand what increasing net promoter score means, but how do we do it? That how do we do it question led to, well, what are we going to do to make people more satisfied and more likely to recommend us? And then the next question was, okay, well, what are the things that they're doing or that we're doing that make them satisfied or dissatisfied? And so when you just start asking that series of questions and really focusing it down to like, what are we doing and what are they doing? You reduce the sort of fuzziness of the question from net promoter score, which by the way, is something that no single team can change, right? It's a scoping problem at that point you reduce the scope of the question to what are the things we can change in our behavior that might make our customers more satisfied? Or what are the things we can do that will help our customers change their behavior so that they're more satisfied? And that just just by scoping down to that very, very tight focus, for me, it, it really clarifies for teams what they should be working on. Right. And so I think that's the advantage of of having this very specific definition. Totally makes sense. And now when we're talking about this mapping down and we say, you know, business impact is that top level is NPS, whether it's revenue, whether it's retention, whether it's acquisition, these top level business metrics or NPS, which would kind of be up there from a customer engagement, top level business metric we're saying we care about. When we're trying to map that down to customer outcomes, how confident do you think teams need to be about that mapping? How much is that speculative versus like, hey, we've got some solid data here that really backs up this claim? Yeah. So I think you want to have a hunch to ask your question is how confident do you need to be? You need to at least have a hunch that if we change this, it will positively change customer behavior, but you don't have to know for certain. And so all of this, all of this work is set in the context of the complexity of uh, making software products and the sort of uncertainty that that complexity brings, right? Mm. We don't know if we ship if we ship a new feature, is it going to create value for the customer? Sometimes we know, and sometimes we don't know. If we know for certain, then there's really no reason in even using an outcome focus to begin with. You know, mm-hmm. if we know there's a bug and we need to fix it, all right, right? Mm-hmm. There's no no uncertainty. But if there's a if there's uncertainty, we need to ask ourselves like. Which, so for example, I want to get customers to visit my site more often. How do I get them to visit my site more often? I don't know. I might have, I might have a dozen ideas. I might have a hundred ideas. How do I know which one I should be working on? Well, all of this, then this comes back to the sort of lean startup notion of having a hypothesis and testing your hypothesis with an experiment or a minimum viable product or Mm -hmm. something like that. So what teams can do is they can say like, we think that if we make this feature, it will generate this outcome. But honestly, we're not sure. So, so our next step is not just to go all in and make the feature. Our next step is actually to test our hypothesis by, making the, by running some experiment. And that experiment might be to make a minimum version of that feature. It might be to go talk to people. It might be, you know, some other kind of research. So you don't have to be, I don't think you can ever be 100% certain, but you want to, this is specifically a technique that when you mix it with hypotheses and experiments, it lets you kind of work your way through that uncertainty. Yeah, I think uncertainty is such a powerful way to frame this. And I think the other thing that 
is easy to mistake in this, uh, what'd you say? It's like a mantra or something, you know, outcome output that everyone uh, <laughs> yeah. carry the flag around and then you figure out, okay, how the hell are we actually going to do this in detail? And uh, there's kind of one of these implicit assumptions, that, oh, we should shift everything we do to be outcome focused. And I think this is another sort of aha moment is, hey, it's not all or nothing. And I think yeah. kind of what you said, and you mentioned this a few times, hey, sometimes just building the damn feature is the right thing to do because there's sufficient certainty of the value of what it is and it's well enough understood. Exactly. You can just skip through a lot because you've got so much certainty in there. But the risk, of course, is that, and, you know, uh, product management 101 is, you know, shipping a feature without understanding the problem is pretty risky. So, right. and then, so normally you try to go over to the problem space and really get more confident in that problem space. And then you can start to progress with more confidence got to validate that it's solving it. But I think what's in interesting for here, and I'm keen to get your perspective on this, is a problem-focused approach uh, versus an outcome-focused approach. Uh, and let me use one example like that we, we're literally working on right now, uh, which I, I think hopefully is easy for anyone to get their heads around, is we're improving inbox search. So we've got a team inbox, which Intercom customers use to respond to their to their end users. And uh, there's a bunch of people working in this inbox, and we've got search in there that we've had for years, and it's really basic. It's just at face level basic, and we've got heaps of years of feedback telling us people of, of how it's not doing the job. They can't find the conversations they're looking for. And there's, of course, multiple variations of that detail, but it's pretty base level. This is way too basic. And we're pretty dialed in on the problem here that we're trying to solve. When we move to the outcome, it gets a little shakier. It gets less certain. It's like, well, we could say we're trying to get people to do more searches, maybe, or maybe we're just trying to get them to get accurate search results, which is hard to exactly measure. We think we've got some proxies for it there, but we're a little shakier there as we go out, right? So if we go from problem sturdy to then to outcome a little shaky, but we think we can get reasonably firm there. And then when we try to go to business impact is where it's like a huge leap. When we're working problems up, going to business impact of, well, we hope this will affect retention. And we've tried to do some models where you can actually try to get some element of a sense of the scale of what the business impact there is, but it feels really loose and shaky. So it feels like, in, in the, it, and that's like a problem-focused one where you're solid there, but then shakier as you go out as compared to where an outcome-focused approach, like say you're trying to improve activation, you're very confident for new customer activation. If you're able to improve this, you're confident that's gonna impact your business impact there, but you're actually not sure what the problem here in the first place is. So you're way shakier on the problem. So like the lens of uncertainty and kind of different approaches to building and prioritizing project come with them different risks of uncertainty at different levels. I'm worried I'm way too much in the abstract here. Tell me if I'm making any sense. <laughs> I mean, I think I think your question is like we like just to go back to the example, right? You've got this search feature in the product, and you you when you frame improving that, you you know you want to improve it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of a problem focused framing. Like we have lots of evidence that the feature is you know less good than it should be. Right. Mm -hmm. And we want to improve it. And so the way you sort of add uh, maybe an outcome focus to that is by asking, how will you know? Right? How will you know that you've improved the feature? And, and specifically, what will people be doing differently after you've improved the feature? Right. And so that's the, that's that, what will people be doing differently? That's that user behavior mm -hmm. that, 
that is the outcome question, right? So after we've improved inbox search, people will get to search results more quickly. People will not run three searches in a row, but they'll search, find, and go, mm-hmm. right? Whatever, whatever those things that people will be doing differently as a result of the change in the feature, that's the sort of first question is, what will people be doing differently as a result of this feature? And I think that's a really important, I, I wanna stay on that question for a second before I get to your next question. That's really important for product teams because it's often the case that we ship a feature and then move on, right? Somebody asks for a feature, we ship it, we're done, we move on to the next one. And we never go back and say, are people using this feature? Are people getting the value that we expect them to get from this feature, right? Mm -hmm. Have they adopted the feature? And so being able to say, after we've made the feature, we've not just done in the sort of scrum sense of the word, but we've actually validated that the feature is behaving as intended because people are using it in the way that we expect. That's a really important sort of discipline, right? And it helps us know whether we can kind of be one and done with the feature or whether we need to go back and iterate. Right. And that's a huge problem for product teams is, you know, just shipping features and moving on. And then you leave this sort of rubble of sort of half finished features behind you, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Product debt is is a real thing. And I think the language we'd use is, hey, you got to validate, did you solve the problem, right? And then sometimes you try to use outcome as a way to measure that as well as qualitative feedback there. And I I think the, like going back to a feature-driven approach is it feels like the anti-patterns or the riskiest ones are at the outside, which is one end from the business impact. If you have a project that's on business impact, that's high risk. We've actually unwittingly ask teams to try to do this. And they're like, we don't, we don't even know where to start. We don't even know how to think about this thing because we've just skipped to the end. And it's like, and so you've got it. Well, hey, the way you approach that is you need to start with figuring out what customer outcomes you're actually trying to orient this team around. And you got to do some work. You got to do some research to actually identify those outcomes that map to that business app impact. So that's like an anti-pattern yeah. is to try to shoot straight from business impact, straight into, okay, team, kick off, go move into execution mode here. That's actually something that I see a lot in my work with organizations is that organizations will be pretty good at defining the sort of high level impacts that they want. You know, the, you know, we need to reduce costs or increase customer loyalty or whatever the focus is for that, that period of planning. And then they, they sort of go, they skip that middle layer, which is the outcome layer mm-hmm. and they jump right to features. We're going to reduce costs by implementing system X. It's like, no, you're not, you're not going to reduce costs with one feature. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> so, so like having that, having the ability to kind of decompose the problem and also, you know, decompose it and, and, and distribute it. Right. Because, if you're a team that's been given a mandate, you're a team of five and even in, t- in an organization of 20, you know, you're going to have a hard time reducing costs. Yeah. Certain, it's less than an organization of 100 or 500, right? So when you start to see those kinds of, you know, teams dealing with these very high level business impacts, that's, that's a smell. You know, there's a problem there and you need to decompose the problem right. um, in more detail. 
Yeah, it's like the smell of like, there's risk or uh, this is unlikely to go well here. So I think it comes from two sides. If it's a feature-driven one, which is typically what happens, the risk is you're too far away from what the actual core problem is. Try to reorient that way before you progress down. If you're coming from business impact, you can't just jump straight down to the feature. You got to orient towards around that customer income. It's sort of the safety net for how to ensure you're actually or get far more confident you're building something of value. That's kind of the way we're trying to frame how to put this into our way of thinking about building product without and not necessarily mm-hmm. upending the whole whole approach that we're doing. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience. It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Another angle you mentioned in your book is you also talk about, hey, there's execution, there's also prioritization, right? So outcomes can be, uh, and it almost seems like maybe they fit most naturally at prioritization. Or is that a leap? Like, do you see these are naturally great ways to build roadmaps or equally helpful at either your prioritization, building roadmaps, or your execution, figuring out how to build it? Well, you know, I think uh, one of the things I think that happens when you when you start working with outcomes is you have to do that work to kind of come up with your theory of how the business works, right? How the nonprofit world calls this a theory of change, but it's like the, the, what's the big picture of like, when people are behaving this way, then these good things happen. And that has these results for the business. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the more you know about your business as your business goes on, the more you can start to build that I don't know if you want to call it a business model or a behavior model or an interaction model, whatever, but you you kind of understand the way your system works as a company. Right. And so doing that work of kind of saying, well, okay, we want to reduce costs. And so to reduce costs, here are the 25 things that people are doing that waste money. Like, let's just lay them out, right? And, and starting to build those models leads very nicely into road mapping and prioritization, Mm -hmm. right? And so as you start to have a better understanding of your business, if you're a brand new startup and you're two months in, you don't really know that stuff. Everything is uncertain, right? You know, if you're a few years in, you're, you're making money, you have some understanding of what your customers value about you, you know, so much more, but you're still looking across this model and saying, okay, given what we're trying to do, 
here are all the sort of possible areas that we can work on. What are the things that we understand? What are the things that we really don't understand and need to investigate? Where's the work that we need to do? All of that happens as you start to build a model. And I think then that model then gets reflected in roadmaps and prioritizations. And and it's a model you re- you really want the entire all of R and D to understand, right? That's something we've only done recently is actually bring them through. Here's how our business works. It's a complex business. There's a lot of pieces to it. We want everyone to understand that so they can map how what they're working or at least start or make those logical jumps and understand the work they're doing and how that could conceivably impact the business model that we've got there. So I think that's both yeah, having that model it, and, and sharing it and and getting people fully immersed into it. And it's more, I think it's more than just having everyone in R&D know it. I mean, I think everybody in the business needs to know yeah, it. Sales definitely. needs to know it. Marketing needs to know it, right? I mean, this is, this is how you're making the strategic decisions about what kind of accounts you go and approach, you know, which, which market segments you're chasing, right? All mm-hmm. of that is, is tied back to this, this model, right? And if you change one piece of it, you say, oh, you know, suddenly enterprise sales looks great as opposed to direct to consumer. Well, that's a whole, that's a huge, right, a huge impact in terms of, I, I mean, it's, maybe that's too obvious to say, but it, it's a huge impact in terms of the prioritization that's going to happen on your feature roadmap. Mm-hmm. And so this, this model needs to be a kind of an organizational wide picture of the causes and effects and the relationships. Gotcha. Let's switch tack here to the the human side of it, the uh, motivational side of it. Have have you seen, I think this came up a few places in the book where moving towards this outcome focus is a far more motivating place for a team to operate under. And you're likely to actually get better, more creative ideas coming from this model because they can more directly see the impact of what of what they're building. Again, I'm using impact here and already blurring the words there. Like I, I can think of one example again like that. When you've got a really tight feedback loop is that best way that this can happen where a, a product team can see when they're shipping something and it actually impacting the outcome they're trying to do. We saw that with like the error rate there and you get people just getting creative and inventive right, right within the day and looking at that. So the tighter that feedback loop, yeah. you can really get to a magic place. Have, have yeah, you seen that yeah. happen where the motivational side itself is almost a, a huge win for this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, like the, the at the end of the day, when, when you're kind of switching from telling teams, uh, make me a feature, you know, make me an output. When you switch from doing that to saying, create an outcome, you're, you know, in one case, you're telling them what to do. And in the other case, you're giving them a problem to solve. And that second way of working, you're really granting the team more autonomy. And, you know, most teams find that autonomy, appropriately scoped autonomy, very, very motivating, right? I come into work every day. Most people, I, one, of, one of the really foundational books for me in, in, in managing software teams is a, a book called uh, Peopleware. It's a pretty old book by now by a couple of guys named DeMarco and Lister. But they write that for people who write software for a living, and by extension, people who think for a living, thought workers, they tend to be intrinsically motivated. They tend to be people who come into work and want to do a good job every day, right? And as a manager, your job is to make it possible for those people to do a good job every day. And, and one of the ways you can do that is by saying, here's your problem. You own this problem. Go solve it. And, and so that's sort of what the, the foundational 
from a from a sort of leadership dynamic point of view, that's the kind of foundational shift between outputs to outcomes. Yeah. It does have the second change though, which is that it really changes leaders' behaviors. And it's actually much, I think it's much easier for teams and much harder for leaders. Mm-hmm. Explain that. Because leaders, yeah, leaders have to get out of the business of saying, I have this solution in my head, go do it. Okay? Mm-hmm. And they actually have to do the work of saying, well, actually what problem am I asking people to solve? And uh, I have to be okay letting go of that control and giving the control to the team. And so if, you know, if you've grown into that leadership role and you're used to being the person who solves problems, presumably you're pretty good at solving problems, which is why you got promoted, right? Now, suddenly you're in the business of not solving problems anymore, but delegating problems. That's a, that's a new skill to learn. And I think a lot of leaders hold on to the old skill because it's, you know, all of us, it's easier to, to use the skills we've mastered than to, to try and learn new ones. So in my experience, it's to, just to kind of come back to the question, it's, it, it's, yes, it's super motivating for teams and teams love it. And it's the, the harder human change is, is in that leadership layer. Yeah, that's interesting. That really resonates a lot. And I think as you're pointing out there, you got to build a new muscle to actually, yeah. and it's a, it's a significant amount of effort to figure out that middle layer of the customer outcomes to go after. Cause you're going to want some yeah. confidence, their value. You're not going to just want to make it up. Right. And yeah. I think it's not sufficiently recognizing, hold on, if we're wanting to switch to this, we've got a decent chunk of work in front of us so that we can really frame the outcomes we think are worth betting on. And, yeah. um, I'm sure for some companies, some products that's way more straightforward, but at least certainly from where I'm coming from, there's a lot of possibilities out there and it's under estimating the amount of work to get there is a real risk. So that, that resonates a lot. Any other, like any other final advice that jumps out at you for thinking uh, for teams looking to kind of change their perspective here, change their way of working? Yeah. So I think, I, I think in general, the way to do it is to start small. You know, if, 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 if this resonates with you, if you've read the book, you're excited about the ideas, um, start small, pick one project or, one set of stories, you know, to, to use the language of Agile, use one epic, right? That's going to be outcome focused and uh, try it, expect it to go okay, not great, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And expect to use retrospectives and to continuously improve your process as you try to implement this, because uh, you'll learn a lot about, you know, it's very easy for me to sit here and write a little book in the, that generalizes all of this stuff. But to actually apply it to the complexity, I mean, just what you were saying, Brian, right? You, you live this stuff every day. You, you, you live the complexity of this product. And to actually put it to work in the real world, it's, it's challenging. And I think you need to go into it with a small start and realistic expectations across the team that we're going to have to take a couple of cracks at this before we start to feel good about it. Yeah. And what what resonates about what you're saying, I mean, we've had some teams internally who have said, hey, we're going to push ahead here and really kind of experiment with different ways of working and also realizing you got to hit a bunch of different levels. I mean, this is at the cultural level of how you build and think and talk about stuff, how you demo stuff, how you celebrate stuff, as well as moving down to the actual process, as well as the details within, you know, a single project of, of how you execute it. So it's hitting in so many levels of, of how you function as an org that uh, you've got to, as you're saying, we're kind of just 
chipping away at a bunch of different levels at the same time, seeing where we can get more confident, make more progress on, rather than having one holistic overview, grand plan of, okay, we figured it all out. Uh, now it's time to put it in place. God knows that would take a while. <laughs> yeah, I think you're really right. And I think, I think thinking about it at the cultural level is really important. And, and because that also is going to push to do this well means you have to push beyond the boundaries of your team. Right. It's not something that's just self-contained. It's you need to be able to talk to the manager, talk to the stakeholder, talk to the salespeople, talk to the people who have visibility into the roadmap who are asking, when is this feature coming? And you have to say, well, we're not promising you any features. We're promising you outcomes. And then you have to fight with them for a couple of hours about that. Right. I mean, there's a lot of communication and, and change management that happens with this. It is at the cultural level and it mm. is broad in the organization. So. Well, listen, why don't we wrap it up there? Really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Enjoyed our conversation today, Josh. Where can people get your book? Keep up with your thinking. Um, so the book is available on Amazon. It's available in print, in ebook and in audiobook on audible.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jay Seiden. And uh, yeah, uh, if, if you read the book and uh, like it, I'd love to hear from you. Great. Yeah. Thanks again. Take care, Josh. Brian, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.